All right, you found the New Species Podcast, and you thought, I'm going to listen to some of these early episodes. But did you know that this is more of a current events kind of podcast? So I suggest you actually start with some of the later episodes, and then if you really want to, come back and listen to some of these early ones. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. You're listening to New Species, the podcast where I talk to scientists about their discoveries of new species that they recently described. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today we're joined by Dr. Rosemary Gillespie. Rosemary is a professor of environmental science, policy and management, and a professor in the Division of Insect Biology and director of the Essig Museum of Entomology at the University of California, Berkeley. She's here today to talk to us about her paper that will be published in the next issue of Invertebrate Systematics, wherein she and her co-authors describe eight new species of happy face spiders from Hawaii. Welcome, Rosie. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's, it's really a pleasure to talk to you about uh, a group that's near and dear to my heart, obviously. You know, I know you through arachnology, although that's definitely not your only claim to fame. You do a, quite a bit with biogeography and the like and, and work with a wide array of groups. But let's talk a little bit about your paper here. I want to know, just let's just get it straight out there. Why are these called happy face spiders? Well, that's a great question, Brian. So these spiders are actually part of a radiation of spiders in Hawaii in this genus Theridion. So there, this, this group, or at least an ancestor of the group, would have arrived in Hawaii. And the, the, the Hawaiian islands are extremely isolated. And when they arrived there, they would have diversified into lots of different species. And this is what the paper is about. So the thing here is that the happy face spider is actually just a single species within that radiation, Theridion gralator. It's, um, it's actually, it's a common name, and it was actually only quite recently given to this spider. And it was given by the, a photographer named Bill Mull, who was an eminent, um, just took the most amazing pictures of, of these animals and other arthropods and really highlighted the diversity of arthropods in the Hawaiian Islands. And so when, when he was brought this specimen, and, and it was a live specimen, and when they showed it to him, he said, oh, it's a happy face spider. And it's called that because it has coloration on the abdomen, and some of the color morphs look just like their smiling faces. There's lots of other color morphs. And this spider, as so I'll, I'll tell you when we get into this, the, the spider is highly what's called polymorphic. There's lots of different color morphs. And they, they have this, every population has a lot of different color morphs, but several of them look just like their smiling little faces. Yeah, and just so we can clarify, so when when you're talking about a radiation, we mean that you get a group that lands there, and we get lots of species out of it, uh, uh, like an individual or a few individuals that get onto the island, and they get lots of species out of it. And and when we talk about the abdomen, we're talking about the back half of the spider. So if you just look at them from above, it's literally like the little happy face emoji that people put, where there's two dots and a and a and a line that looks like the the smiling mouth. It's it's truly incredible if you see this. 
And you're right, there there is quite a bit of variation in the way these things look. So the question then is, what? Let, let's paint people just a little bit more of a picture on these. The question is, like, how brightly colored are these? And actually, how big are they? Because are this something you see, like, you know, the nightmares that people see with the enormous <laughs> spiders? Or are these really tiny? Or, or And are they really brightly colored, really dim? <laughs> well, so, so, yes, when you see pictures of them, they're actually, you can see happy-faced spiders on the sides of the Hawaii U-Haul trucks. Um, they look huge. And so when people have, when I've shown them actual happy-faced spiders, they say, they always say oh it's so tiny they're just about you know the whole the whole body going from the head to the to the bottom it's about four millimeters for for a fairly chunky female spider and their so legs about two are... tenths of an inch right about two tenths of an yes, inch is that about right that, yeah. about that and um so they've got long legs and so they're 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 somewhat bigger in their legginess, but um, they're not big spiders, but they're very pretty, very colorful. And so they, the happy face spider itself sits under leaves. And so it sits flat against the underside of a leaf. And what's really cool about that is that it almost, most of the color forms almost disappear against the underside of the leaf. So when you look from underneath, you hardly see anything. And this is their strategy, because it seems that the reason why there's so many different color forms is that they have predators. The predators are the Hawaiian honey creepers. These are really voracious little predators out there. And so the honey creepers peer under the leaves. And when they, when they look under there, many of the color forms just disappear against the underside of the leaf. And so the, they can't see them. But they develop what's called a search image, a kind of, you know, where, where they just try and see exactly a very hard to see little spider. And they develop a search image for that. So when, they, when they've developed a search image for these really hard to see little color forms, then at that point, as Lisa's argument goes, if they're just any other color, they won't actually be seen by the birds because the birds have this search image for this thing that's that's hard to see. And so if you look different, you're not going to be seen by the birds. And so this is the argument as to why you get so many different color forms of these spiders. Yeah, and, and when I explain, you know, the search images to my students, I always talk about, so I pull out my keys and I have this like little green key ring on there. And I say, so if I lose my keys, what am I looking for? Am I looking for the key or am I looking for the, the bright green part? And then everything that has that exact color catches my eye, but anything that's slightly off, I'm like, no, that's not it. That's not it. My, my brain just ignores it. So that's what we mean by that search image, right? And these birds, they, and I don't think people understand is, is that these, these colorations on these things are actually pretty bright. Like they have reds and they have greens and they have yellows and all sorts of colors. And so they can be red at the front or red at the back. Both of those look like little smiley faces, but they can be red at the front and the back. They can be red rings all around like a red donut. They can be red all over like a blood red blob. And or they they can be, you know, they can be white all over. Some of them look like cowrie shells or just gleaming shiny white all over. So yes, some very colorful animals. And what's crazy about this is that when you live in a place like where I live, where everything currently is just white, in the summer, what we see is green. How how does a color like red that you would expect to stand out 
actually camouflage them? Like, what is it? Are they really blending into the foliage that well, or is it has to do with the the leaf venations? Or it's presumably just this search image, which huh. is so interesting because you know when we're looking under the leaves, of course, the ones that jump out at us are are the ones that are more colorful. But it seems that this is really designed, I mean, the whole strategy is around this search image idea, so that if you look different from the most common form, then you're going to escape the, the visual system of the, of the predators. And that's, that's the argument. And what's interesting here is that it's, you know, within the happy face spider, you've got all of this diversity. But in this paper, we describe all of these other species of Theridion within the radiation. They're, they're all closely related to happy face spiders. And many of them have the same color polymorphism. They can even co-occur at the same place as the happy face spider itself. And they, they have this color polymorphism. So this color polymorphism has evolved repeatedly in all of these different lineages. Even within happy face spiders, we found that it's evolved independently on different islands. So there's clearly strong selection, you know, that the, the birds are, seem to be making it um, so that, that, that many of these species so, show the same kind of color diversity. It's just a fascinating group. When you, when you look at all of that. And we know now why they have the different coloration patterns and, and it's basically predator avoidance. But what are these little tiny, so these are really tiny spiders. What are these little tiny spiders doing in our world? What are they, what is their ecological, you know, what we would say as scientists, what is their ecological role? What is their niche to the, to the more common individual out there, to the, somebody who's not a, a trained scientist? How would you explain why these things are important in the planet? You know, why do we need these little spiders all over Hawaii? Yes. Well, uh, just as, as a bit of, of background here, there, I should say that the spiders are, have been largely ignored for a very long time. And so they, it was this person, um, RCL Perkins. RCL Perkins came over from the British Museum back in the late 1800s. And he went out into the forest and found lots of different animals. And he, you know, he found mostly birds, of course, he was looking mostly for birds, but he, he worked a lot on, on insects and he found the spiders. The spiders that he did find, he sent off to Eugene Simone in Paris. And Eugene Simone described a few species and so, so this was the basis for our knowledge of the Theridion. Since then, so this is published back right at, you know, 1900. Since then, there was pretty much nothing done on these spiders until Mikel Arnado came over to Hawaii and joined me because I was working in, in Hawaii at the time. And Mikel came over and saw that, you know, there's a, there, there's some, something pretty extraordinary going on here. You know, it's not just the happy face spider. There's all of this diversity of Theridion. And so he collected many of these animals. And so Mikel is senior author of the paper. Adria Belver, who's his student, is, is the first author of the paper. And so Adria was the one who separated out all of these multiple species into, into different entities and showed exactly what they are. So what these things are mostly, you know, that they're similar to the happy face spider in that they're small. They're kind of three to four millimeters. Many of them are living in nooks and crannies in the, in the side of branches and things like that. So not as much out in the open as, as the happy face spider. 
But in terms of what they do ecologically, they so that they're living in these little little webs there. You think of them, you know, well, no one can see them, but the birds are after them, and they're actually a prominent part of, of, of the honey creeper diet. And so you can tell that, I mean, the birds have caused the, led to this, this selective pressure that's caused all this color polymorphism, the di diversity of colors amongst the different individuals in a given species. And so we know that they play a key role in, um, in the diet of the of, of birds. And we know, you know, from gut content analysis that they're, they're a major component of the, of the bird diet. And, well, and they're, yeah. additionally, they're, additionally, they're predators, right? Because uh, I don't think a lot of people know that Hawaiian islands are, are fairly famous for a large diversity of fruit flies, among other things. And as I understand it, these spiders are actually major predators of some of those groups, right? Like the fruit flies and the like. Absolutely. Yes, they feed on Drosophila, on, on little, all sorts of little um, Hawaiian arthropods. Yes, so they themselves are major predators. And, and, the, um, and the Drosophila are the fruit flies we're talking about. That's a, another one where we've had another major radiation there, right. just like the, with these spiders where a few species become, or, or a few individuals become many, many species yes. across the islands. Yes, absolutely. How did you decide that these were new species. You talked about Adria collecting them, and if they're really tiny and you have a lot of polymorphism, which means lots of different versions of the exact same thing, how do you differentiate the different species that, that you've described in here? So that's Because you, you, you describe good... eight new species. Yeah. You describe eight new species in addition to several other species that were already known or included in the paper. Totally. So, yes, yeah, so actually it was Mikel Arnado and others who've collected them. Adria himself has not actually been to Hawaii, although now he knows a lot about it. Um, so Adria was looking at the somatic morphology, which means the actual form of the body, the, the structures of the, of the body. And he was looking at the genitalia, which are the male and female parts of the spider, which dictate what, how well a male and a female can, can actually um, stick together when they, when they mate. And so those features are really important in understanding the, the identity of a, of a given species. And so they used those key lines of evidence, just the general morphology, the general structure, and the, the genitalic morphology. But they backed this up with molecular data as well. Mikel had already generated some, some molecular data when he was in Hawaii. Um, back in the 90s. And so so we kind of knew also we had that as, as just a, a little bit of additional information to tell us how, how discrete the different entities were. Do you have different species on different islands? Do you have collections of species that you find on one island and then you find very different ones? Or do you have some that are across all of the islands or both? So yes, that's a, a really interesting question. So most, well, you're a biogeographer, right? You're, yes, is, that's one of the things you really love. Love, and I know that's what draws you to the Hawaiian Islands. Is this chain of islands is an opportunity to see radiations just like that, where you get uniqueness on some islands and not some on others. How does this work for the biogeography? So the the biogeography is so cool within this group and in all groups actually. For most spiders, I also work on this long the long jawed spiders in the genus Tetragnatha and several other groups, jumping spiders and crab spiders. But 
many of them start off on the oldest island. The radiation starts off on the oldest island. And so for many groups, they reached Hawaii when it was really just Kauai, just the oldest island was the only island there. And then as new islands appeared, they hopped down the island chain. So went from Kauai and then Oahu appeared, they hopped over to Oahu, then Maui and the complex there appeared and they hopped down there and then Hawaii How did they appeared. Get to an how do they get to an island in the middle of the ocean? Oh, that's a, a great question. Presumably, they ballooned there. And it seems what that, is that... And what does that mean? Ballooning, what does that mean ballooning is when these spiders, the, as little spiderlings, they they hatch out from the egg and there's all sorts of, you know, their brothers and sisters are all around them. And so they they need to get away. They're predators and they need to get away from their, their siblings. And so what they do is they climb up to some high point and let out a bit of silk and the wind catches that silk and pulls and pulls and pulls more and then the spiders can just take off in the air. And what, Exactly is what happens at the end of Charlotte's Web, right? That's the, the it, little baby spiders go up. Totally. Only it's not so kind because at the end of Charlotte's Web, they talk to to Wilbur and say, bye. In this case, they're, please don't eat me. My brothers and sisters are cannibals and I need to get out of here. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay, so but, they ballooned They ballooned to an island like Kauai, right? So and yes, the and I should, show up. I should say that that was a very unusual event. So Hawaii, the Hawaiian archipelago is supremely isolated. There's really, there's very little in between the Hawaiian Islands and the American continent. If you go on the other side of the Pacific, there are many atolls. So if things can jump, you know, from atoll to atoll, they can get across to the Hawaiian Islands. But, but if you're, you know, a, a cool high elevation animal, then really you're relying on, on ballooning and you're relying often on storm trajectories to get out to these places. And so it's a very rare event whereby you can get out to, to these very remote islands. And so when this ancestral Theridion would have arrived in, in Kauai, or presumably, when it arrived there, there would have been a lot of ecological opportunity because there weren't any other spiders around. You know, maybe the Tetragnatha was there, maybe the long-jawed spider was there, but very few other spiders. And so... And they, and they probably got there the same way, right? They probably got there. It seems that they did. And probably ballooning from the American continent and arrived there and then diversified into all of these forms. And it seems that they've, they've gone from one island to the next, but they're, they tend to be endemic to a single island. Most of these, these animals are just found on a single island and not on any others. There are two exceptions. Theridium gralator, our friend the happy face spider, and Theridium malinum is another one that is found not on Kauai, but they're found on Oahu down to the youngest island. And so you say, well, are they moving more? Well, I had a, a postdoc with me, Peter Croucher, and what Pete was able to show was that they, if you look at populations of happy face spiders, they're incredibly distinct on each of the islands. So they're not moving between islands at all. They're, they're very, they, they arrive there and they just, you know, they do their happy face spider thing, but, the, but they stay very well differentiated from the older island. So yes, there's very strong endemism, which means that the uniqueness 
to a single island and to a single location even within an island. So many of these species are just found in, you know, on a single island and a single volcano within a single island and a single place within the single volcano within the island. So very um, narrowly endemic. You have reminded me of one of the more influential papers that I remember reading when I was an undergraduate and 20 some odd, 25 years ago or something uh, that had to do with dispersal of milkweed to one of the British Columbian islands from the mainland. And what they found was that the pappus, which is the little fuzzy part of it, actually got smaller once you got the island population established because that's the thing that disperses it. And if you're on an island, if you blow away, there's a high probability you land in the water and particularly salt water would be bad for, say, plants and spiders. Have you noticed that there's a lower incidence of ballooning or some change in the morphology based on what you would think the ancestral species were like, the old the species that were original populations for them might be? That's a very good point. Um, so yes, it was actually Darwin that first talked about this, that, um, you know, that, that when things got to islands, he was talking about beetles on the island of Madeira and saying, you know, how many are flightless? And he argued that the ones that were flighted, if they, if they had, were on this isolated island, if they were flighted, then what would have what would happen is that you know if they if they retain their dispersal ability they get blown out to sea and that is exactly what seems to be happening with the spiders they do, when the ones in hawaii as i said the happy face spider is and and most of these species they're endemic to tiny little areas and so they're they just don't they don't move around and so what it seems then is that they've got to these islands and then their their dispersal ability has much reduced. And the thing is, you would expect that because spiders of all things, you know, they've got a very active mode of dispersal. They deliberately go up onto a little twig and sure, let out yeah. silk. But once they take off, they can't control it. And so there would be very strong selection just not to do that because they're just going to be taken off into into nowhere. And um, so so there would be strong selection to reduce this kind of dispersal capacity. And, and what we mean by strong selection, just so people are aware, is <clears throat> that, you know, that you have, like, say, for example, there are tall people and there are short people. If you only allowed the short people to breed, you would eventually find that through several generations, you would only have shorter people. In this case, if you have lots of spiders that put off these long silk strands and start ballooning, the ones that didn't do that or didn't do it nearly as much would be more likely to stay on the island and breed. And so the ones that kind of have the genetic hardwire to do that more active ballooning probably landed in the water and died. Exactly. And so they were not added to the gene pool. Exactly. So yes, I, I would be remiss, <laughs> and I truly mean this, I would be absolutely remiss if I did not ask you about the names. <laughs> that you picked for these eight new species of spider. They immediately struck me. The one that I recognized immediately and understood what was going on was the last one you list in your abstract, and that's Sycorax. Uh, I'm sorry, Sycorax. And I knew immediately, wait, these are names from The Tempest, from Shakespeare's The Tempest. How did you determine? How did you and your co-authors decide? Like, we should name all of these after The Tempest. <laughs> First, tell us what The Tempest is, just for people who may not be familiar with the play, in a very brief way. And then I, how did you decide then that that's good names for these spiders? Well, 
so we would really need Mikel Arnado here to give this justice. But um, Mikel was, you know, Mikel and Adria are both from Barcelona. And <clears throat> Mikel was very taken at the time when, when he was working in Hawaii. As I said, that was in the 90s. He was very taken by Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. In particular, the idea that Hawaii kind of conjures up the same idea of The Tempest. Um, so the, the idea that, that it's, it's a Shakespeare play taking place in a remote island where, where all the protagonists are isolated there. And, and they're stranded there, right? right they get stranded right. from a shipwreck. Yes. And so this is kind of, the, this, this was the rationale for thinking, you know, this would be an ideal kind of um, structure to, for, for naming these species. So the play really served as, as a, as, as a way of framing the names for all of these species. So it gave, it gave Mikel and Adria, it gave them a common rationale for all of these new species. But so they're all names taken from the Tempest. So wait, you said that these come from the American mainlands, right? Yes. Going back to my geography from grade school, which may or may not be completely accurate, both in my memory and the way it was taught, I have not, I'm not sure which, I'm not speaking to anybody about that particular part, I thought in the Northern Hemisphere, we had these westerlies that would be bringing things in from the west. How are we going to the west so, if we're coming in from the mainland? Obviously, storms probably have some play in this, right? So this is, the I think, the, a really interesting thing that we're learning about dispersal. It seems that for many things that are dispersing aerially, which so through the air, through the wind currents, it seems that they follow the storm trajectories and not the prevailing winds. So the prevailing winds seem to circulate round. And this is something actually... And, and those prevailing winds go from west to east. That's why we call them westerlies, because yes, they come from the west. Right? Exactly. Okay. The storms, though, like the, the hurricanes and things, they're, they're, a lot of them are coming from the mainland US or, or at least Central America, I should say. And so they're coming over and, and going out towards, towards Hawaii. And so what it seems, and this is what, what Gresset argued back in, you know, the forties, fifties, he argued that these, you needed storms and, um, events like this for a, a really, for a successful dispersal event, because in storms, things can really get picked up and then taken somewhere quickly because the storms, you know, often they're going, they can, they can transport things much more quickly than prevailing winds. And so it takes them there and then it's much more forceful. It can both pick things up and dump them down. And so and this... pick up bigger things too, right? Yes, so, I absolutely. Mean, we, we, we think of birds as being able to fly, but in high winds, they're just basically at the, the will of the wind. This is how we think that Darwin's finches ended up in the Galapagos. This is how we end up thinking that a lot of the birds that we find in the Hawaiian Islands got there have to do with these. Even though they can fly, when you're in those kind of winds, you're at the mercy of the of the storm itself. And even plants, so you can get much larger things and move them much further distance. I'm not talking up, uprooting an entire plant, but we're talking about seeds that would not normally be able to do that would make it there. Like the Hawaiian silver swords, for example, are a group of plants that are endemic now to Hawaii. They have several endemic populations, but originate from North America. Yes. And so for some of those, it seems that they came out via birds. And so there are migratory birds that go right from the Arctic 
down, they cross right through the Pacific. They have Hawaii is a, is a stopping point, as are the Mar Marquesas, and and they so that this is a well known um, flyway, the 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 Central Pacific flyway. And it seems that some organisms have have got across the the, the different far flung islands using birds as a way to 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 disperse. And this is but some of the some of these birds end up on the Hawaiian Islands, though, not because of migration, but because of these storms, right? Because oh, they're, absolutely, they're not something that would absolutely move that far. They they would not be able to do. They're not an albatross that can fly long distances with very little food for days on end. These are birds that have a higher metabolism and need to eat. Like me, if I go a few days without food, I will die <laughs> just because that's I just need to eat all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. So yes, the things like the finches, so the the ancestor of the of the honey creepers would have got here. It would have been blown right off course, presumably. Presumably that's how it got there. And so what we have to remember in this is, you know, you say, well, how likely is that? Or, you know, you think, well, it's 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 really hard to get all the way out there but the the whole dynamic that characterizes the hawaiian islands requires that these events are extremely rare so the colonization of any bird the any like like the the honey creepers or whatever the colonization of those animals and like the theridian it would have been extremely rare that that they actually got there and established there because and survived and survived, yeah, and survived. yes, yeah. and so it, if it was common, then you wouldn't get the radiations that you find, you wouldn't get the multiple species evolving from these ancestors that first got to the islands. Why is it important for people to know about these spiders? What can we learn from them that we can apply, apply maybe elsewhere? And why should the general public know about four millimeter spiders with happy faces on their butts? <laughs> Besides the fact that they're extremely interesting and cool. Right, which they are. So the, I think one of the biggest things here is understanding the diversity of life before it goes extinct. And that sounds kind of defeatist. But it is really important that we understand this diversity. The native forests in Hawaii are being rapidly modified through invasion and disease. And the endemic species, as we said, they're confined to tiny little areas. And so they're extremely vulnerable to extinction. Each of these species has a role in the ecosystem. The theridian, they're, as we've talked about before, they're a major part of the diet of the birds and they're major predators themselves. And so they play a key role in, in that ecosystem. And so protecting them for their role in the ecosystem, they're, they're so vulnerable to extinction. Those are major reasons to, to think about, you know, that they, we need to understand them. Well, Rosie, your bounding energy and enthusiasm for this is absolutely amazing. And I truly appreciate you taking the time to come on this podcast and help educate us all to the joys of the happy face spider and their relatives. Thank you so much. And I, I really enjoy talking with you. And I look forward to the next time we have a chance to speak. Well, thank you so much, Brian. It's been a pleasure being here. And I, it's, I love talking about these animals, as you can tell. So thank you. And thank you. <laughs> Once again, Dr. Rosemary Gillespie's paper is in the next issue of Invertebrate Systematics, and the title of the paper is A Happy Family, Systematic Revision of the Endemic Theridion Spiders of the Hawaiian Islands. The paper is currently available via early access and is open access through the month of February. 
See the episode details for a link to her paper. To learn more about Dr. Gillespie, follow her on Twitter at Berkeley underscore Evolab or Instagram Berkeley.evolab or find her at vcresearch.berkeley.edu forward slash faculty forward slash Rosemary dash G dash Gillespie. Additional information about the co-authors on this paper are also available in the episode notes. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash New Species Podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash New Species Podcast.